0: Hi, and welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. I am also the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show on True TV, which airs Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. on True TV, which I hope you check out. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetvcom Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But here's how the podcast works on the TV show, I talk to incredible experts for like 90 seconds, two minutes. On this podcast, I talk to them for 45 minutes, sometimes even an hour, so we can really get into their deep and wonderful work. Um, today on the show, we have Rosie Cooney, who appeared on the Animals episode of Adam Ruins Everything. And just to, like, recap really quickly uh, what this episode was about. She appeared in the trophy hunting segment. And in that uh, segment, we talk about how trophy hunting, you guys know trophy hunting, when, like, rich guys go over to countries and kill lions and stuff like that, we're always like, oh, that's terrible! We should ban it! In reality, that practice is actually used in some countries, not all, to conserve entire species of animals. It's a really counterintuitive argument. Honestly, it's one of the most challenging arguments we ever had on the show. Even we in our writer's room uh, had a lot of qualms about it. We were like, wait a second, this really seems, this is really a tough one. Do you really need to kill animals to save animals? Should we really suggest that this is okay? But the more we looked into it, the more we found that this is a really compelling argument, and incredibly expert, well-studied, compassionate people believe that this is honestly an approach that is worth considering and maintaining. If you really want to save the lives on these of these animals and Rosie Cooney is one of them. She's the chair of this sustainable use and livelihood specialist group of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is a very long title, but I swear is a uh, uh, very at the IUCN is an extremely well-regarded group, so we're very lucky to have her. Um so look, if you're one of the folks who watched this episode and had some questions about like how does this argument really work, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Um, she has a really wonderful, nuanced way of looking at these issues, and a way that I I hope if you care about animals will give you at the very least, look at the end, you don't have to love trophy hunting, but I think you may come away with a broader perspective as to the issue in general and how to how to save these animals that we all love so much. So uh, we're doing this interview over the phone with Rosie all the way from Canberra, Australia. So as as far as uh, podcasts go, this is the longest simultane- This is the longest distance simultaneous conversation you're likely to hear on a podcast this week. Um, anyway, let's get right to the interview, uh, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I was just saying right before we started rolling that you're, I I, I loved, uh, it's really wonderful to hear your voice because your speaking voice on the episode is so, I don't know, somehow, this issue is so upsetting to so many people, the idea of, you know, animals dying out in in far off places and uh, just the way that you speak about it um, is, I found so soothing in a way. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well that's good to hear.
0: <laughs> Would you tell us just a little bit about what you do at the IUCN, what the what the group does and and uh yeah.
1: So I chair the it's called the Sustainable Use and Livelihood Specialist Group. So we're a joint specialist group of two IUCN commissions. The Species Survival Commission, which sort of focuses on species conservation from primarily a biological perspective and the Commission on Environmental, Economic, and Social Policy, which really focuses on the social justice and human rights issues. So we're trying to bring together both biological science and the social science and recognition of indigenous and community rights perspectives in conservation to address these issues of sustainable use of wildlife, which really require looking at from both perspectives. So we're about 300 people from all around the world with... um, Almost everyone is contributing on a voluntary basis. Um, there are academics, government peoples, regulators, NGOs, etc. And everyone has expertise on some aspect of sustainable use, whether it's harvesting theory, traditional knowledge, uh, addressing illegal wildlife trade, and so forth.
0: So that, that's really interesting that your, that your work covers both the biological aspect of, of the animals themselves, but also the, the social dimension of... Uh, the people who who actually live in those places because I th- I think often we forget about you know we sort of imagine the animals in isolation as as a thing to be saved you know sort of like a polar bear living on an iceberg all alone and there's no one around and we just have to keep it alive but the point is that there are sort of there are people who who live with these animals and have for a long time and and their needs need to be taken into account as well and their interactions with those animals is that right?
1: Yeah, and that is perhaps why we approach the issue somewhat differently to many very well-meaning and well-intentioned and skilled conservationists who address the issue from a purely biological perspective. So we're looking at the whole landscape and the whole complex of factors that affect conservation. And I think one has to recognize as a starting point that conservation today is very difficult We've got a massively increasing global population. We've got increasing consumption of that population. The pressures on land are intense. So these are really questions about how do we sustain the political will to put land aside for wildlife? And then there's the whole economic dimension is how do we pay for it? How do we pay to keep poachers out? How do we pay to provide benefits to local people so that they don't want to poach? How do we pay for electric fencing where that's necessary and so forth?
0: got it yeah because we so often think of and i think this is sort of a product of the environmental culture that i grew up in in the united states in the late 80s and early 90s where it was sort of you know save the earth uh you know uh, save the you know save the polar bear save the pandas etc and it just sort of seemed like oh it's just something that we should do we should just not kill them and keep them alive but the reality is that one needs to actually figure out what are the political mechanisms that you can use in order to make that happen, which that's a difficult problem.
1: Yeah, it's a difficult problem with social, economic, cultural, and biological perspectives. Yeah, so I think people look for bans because they're easy tools. You know, the U.S. or the E.U. or, you know, one of the developed countries, there's a lot of pressure there just to ban trophy hunting or to ban all imports of trophies. And that's a really easy tool like looking at the long-term measures to actually conserve populations in a landscape, that's much harder.
0: So, for the uh, for, you know for the folks at home who maybe or, or in their cars or on their jogs or ever they listen to their podcasts, who you know maybe didn't catch this specific episode but are interested, what is what is the argument from you and your group's perspective against simply banning trophy hunting in a nutshell?
1: Okay, it works a little differently in different places, but some of the results of those kind of simple bans are that you can remove the incentives for private landholders to conserve wildlife on their land. So that would mean those wildlife populations are lost. You can remove the incentives for community stakeholders. So here we're talking maybe in Central Asia or Africa, communities that hold the land in common you may remove the incentive for them to keep wildlife on their land. So from a government perspective, you may remove a source of revenue for governments, which is critically needed in most countries, to manage and conserve and protect that wildlife. And finally, you may remove a benefit to local communities who live near wildlife to continue to tolerate living next to it and suffering the crop depredations, loss of life, etc. that comes with living with wildlife. So to sum it up, you can take away a source of incentive and revenue to actually protect and conserve wildlife.
0: So, yeah, the the theory that and what we sort of walk through on the show is that in some countries and and I'd love for you to tell me exactly which are the you know, uh, I'd love to hear from you, which are the ones who are doing it most properly. But in some countries, trophy hunting is, uh, you know, sort of a a reasonable, non damaging amount of trophy hunting is used to incentivize the preservation of the larger species that by uh, allowing the hunting of a few individuals, the, the private loan landowners can be incentivized to set land aside to have those animals live on and sustain their populations or the uh, uh the government itself will receive the conservation revenue, et cetera and that that is that's working in some places, and we shouldn't rush to judgment about it at the very least is is that correct?
1: Yes, definitely it's not a theoretical argument. I mean this is happening and has happened. so as an example in Zimbabwe and South Africa, due to and Namibia due to policy changes, fairly late last century. And um, huge areas of land that were agriculture, so they were growing corn or growing goats or growing cattle, were turned over to wildlife
2: hmm.
0: as a
1: result of the income that could be made from, from trophy hunting and from tourism.
0: And I would so imagine trophy that… trophy
1: hunting and tourism, they're not either or.
0: And I would imagine that agriculture would be one of the – that's a land use that in the past would have specifically taken away land away from those animals. That's sort of one of the most uh, sort of land-hungry things out there. So for it to be –
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we're talking about sort of monocultures of crops or intensive grazing by livestock, which not only displaces the wildlife, but it also means that the owner of that land is often not willing to tolerate competition from wildlife – with the livestock grazing.
0: And so in the, in the countries that have put this into practice, is this a matter of, you know, are these literally countries or conservation groups saying, hey, let's try trophy hunting as a conservation strategy, let's implement it, oh, hey, it's working, or is this more of a sort of, you know, old-fashioned equilibrium that we shouldn't disrupt? Or, I mean, how, you know, how much is this uh, something something to advocate as a system?
1: Um. No, it's certainly, I mean, areas now, say some in Central Asia, like Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and some parts of Pakistan, are actively bringing in trophy hunting programs now. Really? And it's not that the urge is trophy hunting. It's not like people are saying, what we really want is trophy hunting. (laughs) It's just a very pragmatic exercise. So you have, say, in Tajikistan a local community, some NGOs who want to work with the community, they need to be able to pay people to conduct patrols, you know, to ensure that Argali, wild sheep, for instance, that snow leopard, aren't being poached. So how do you pay for that? Yeah. You know, in in a perfect world, there would be lots of other sources of revenue, and all the people in the developed world who want to support conservation would be willing to give large amounts of money for these sort of purposes. But it's not that easy to do that. And that kind of money comes with very high transaction costs and often locks local communities or local NGOs into a kind of donor dependency. Mm. So this form of revenue for them, they can control it to a large extent when we're talking about community-based programs. Um, The transaction costs are relatively low. They're not sort of having to write enormous, uh, reports and proposals every two years, <laughs> and it's, it's a you know it's a steady source of income that involves mortality of a very low number of animals. So what we've seen in, in some of the good Central Asian projects is really extraordinary recoveries of Marco, a wild goat, a Gali. Um, there seems to be some snow leopard recovery associated with one project at the moment. You know, very strong results as a result of this revenue coming in and supporting conservation.
0: It's incredible, yeah. And we also have a number uh, about how, and I think this is the one we talk about in the show about how a third of pr- white rhinos in South Africa live on private land, and their population's gone up to eighteen thousand. I, I won't ask you to confirm those numbers, but that's the those are the ones that you have. Um, but, well, let, let me ask you this: You know, when people are picturing trophy hunting, right, or the existing market for for trophy hunting, what kind of you know what kind of market are we talking about? Like, what, what, are, who are the people who are going out and and paying this money, and how is that distinct from you know poaching or other forms of uh, killing these animals that that uh, that are more damaging?
1: Okay, so in terms of who's doing the hunting, it, it depends where you are. So globally, a lot of hunters come from the USA, from Canada, from Germany, from Spain increasingly from East Asia, from China in particular, seems to be a growing source of hunters. And the big difference with poaching is that it is, in principle at least, with a lot of failures in some places, quite tightly regulated. So there needs to be a license, there's a quota for the various species, uh, there's a whole lot of fees that have to be paid that often go to different entities, some to the landholder, some to the government, some to perhaps local government depending on where you are. So it's a a legal, regulated activity. But I don't want to give the impression that there isn't a lot of bad practice Hmm. because we certainly, you know, there are some really excellent examples of well-managed trophy hunting. But equally, there are some really bad examples of very very poorly managed trophy hunting. Right, I was going to ask you about
2: those.
1: Yeah, a lot of political pressure being exercised to increase quotas. A lot of people using it as a sort of way to make some quick money and then move on to another area, so that's from in terms of the hunting operators and of course, the problem here is that it's very hard to get good information on the bad practice, so hmm. we can pull together information on the good practice. We know there are bad practices out there because we hear about them, but none of it's documented. You know, we would like to be able to put our information also on exactly what is going wrong in places, but it's extremely difficult to do that. It is all sort of allegation and hearsay.
0: Well, so let, let, let me ask you this, because, you know, I we had, you know, people tweeted us uh, about this uh, episode and and, you know, for uh, animal lovers, especially in the West, this is sort of a hot button issue. Um, you know, I even saw uh, just so I don't call out one of my followers for tweeting at me. Uh, someone directed me to a Ricky Gervais tweet. You know, he's very into um, animal conservation. Um, it's a big issue for him. Yeah. And he had tweeted something like, uh, you know, trophy hunting revenues don't go back to the communities. They're scooped up by corrupt officials. Don't believe that it, it's a myth right and uh, and so whenever anybody well, I, I pe- people love to tell me that something I said on the show is a myth and so that's why they sent it to me but you know I, I, my immediate rejoinder to that would be like well you're probably he's probably talking he probably read some article about a country where it didn't work well and we're talking about countries where it does work well um, but I suppose one might say to that look if this is a practice that in some cases is badly managed and is resulting in the deaths of too many animals or is hurting local animal populations why should we engage in it at all why should Shouldn't we find a a conservation means that, you know, works all the time rather than one that is, you know, subject to the whims of corrupt officials? I I mean, uh, I I don't know if you have a response to that sort of uh, argument.
1: Well, I think that would be lovely. Yes. I mean, that would be the ideal. And if anyone comes up with it, (laughs) we'd love to hear about it. You know, it just comes back to the question. Conservation is difficult. There is no perfect silver bullet. There aren't other solutions sort of waiting in the wings in a lot of these countries. But in response to Ricky Gervais's tweet, you know, I'd be very happy to introduce him to some of the community members who are benefiting from Hmm. trophy hunting, who are, when they get a chance, some of the most vocal and articulate defenders of well-managed trophy hunting, where it can is controlled by and benefits communities. So we, we recently held a meeting on the margins of the CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species meeting that was recently held in Joburg, in Johannesburg, where well, we got together about thirty five community members from twelve different countries to discuss these sorts of issues. And we were particularly talking about, you know, sustainable use. How do you feel about the restrictions on it? The sort of campaigning by a lot of, um, sort of social media campaigners and, uh, international restrictions on forms of use. And they were very clear that they thought it should be their decision in a lot of cases. As long as it was sustainable and well managed, they wanted to have a much stronger voice in decision-making around these sorts of questions. Because communities are the ones that get completely left out of this debate.
0: Right. That, that's something that uh, the first time that we spoke on the phone about this when we were first doing our research for the episode, that really struck me as part of your point of view on this, that it's sort of very easy for us in the West to make proclamations about how we think that animals should be treated. But in reality, we're kind of, you know, those proclamations are about someone else's country, where they live, they're closer to those animals. If, you know, as much as we love them, they arguably perhaps have more of a stake in, in their conservation, right? It, it, whether or not those animals live or die has uh, affects uh, them even more. And uh, we, we sort of suffer from... An enormous asymmetry of power and information, you know, about the conditions there. Like, like, uh, you know, everyone who was upset, you know, I don't mean to jump on the Cecil Lion uh, incident, because that was obviously that's sort of uh, what we go to uh, first. and And that got so heated, you know, for a number of reasons. But you know, people in the West have such strong opinions about that case, but they know almost nothing about the reality of the uh, on the ground in the country where it happened. Which, I, honestly, off the top of my head, I don't even rem- remember where it did happen. And I bet most people who are mad about <laughs> Zimbabwe. it, go- <laughs> Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Which is no, that's right. That's, that's exactly so striking.
1: Right. Yeah. So as you say, it's an imbalance of knowledge and and power, but it's an also a massive imbalance of cost. Hmm. Because who bears the cost of these decisions? You know, if if the country is forced to drop trophy hunting as a tool, who actually bears the cost of that? So I completely agree that in some cases, communities aren't getting any benefit from trophy hunting. And in some cases, they've actually been historically kicked out of land where wildlife is now protected for trophy hunting.
2: Hmm.
1: So, you know, there are massive injustices that trophy hunting is associated with as well. But on the other hand, you've got situations like Namibia, where on communal conservancies, which now cover some extraordinary proportion of the country, um, it it is communities which they enter into the contracts with the hunting operators. They make the decisions about hunting on their land. Some of them use hunting, some of them use tourism, some of them use hunting and tourism to generate their revenue. But, you know, that's their management tool that they've decided to use. And it's lifted living standards, it's funding education for children, it's funding Schools and clinics in these very remote and very poor areas.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how. I mean, I don't want to accuse uh, any you know any animal lover or, or wild animal lover of of uh, being you know unfair uh or or unempathetic um but it's interesting how much we privilege the needs of the animals over the over the people who live there rather than uh balancing them like uh, you you've described uh and I don't know if we used it in the episode but but on the phone a bit about how um even living around these animals can be uh difficult for the people in those countries and that has to be something that's taken into account as well
1: yeah i wish i had the figures at hand but Uh, In the aftermath of the Cecil incident, some figures came out on how many people had been killed by wildlife in Zimbabwe in the previous few months, in which the world had been focused and understandably focused on Cecil. And I don't have the figures at hand, but it was in the hundreds. Wow. So these are, and literally, there are literally, in Southern Africa alone, hundreds of people killed every year by wildlife. If you added up the figure across Africa, it would be definitely in the thousands, probably the, the many thousands. But these are, these are people who die with their, their voices never heard, their deaths never commented on by the world, from crocodiles, from hippos, from elephants, from lions. So there is an extraordinary imbalance in, in which deaths we focus on.
0: And, you know, I I don't want to say that, uh, you know, human lives are are more important than these animal lives, especially when there's so few of them. But look, I I think about conservation and and, uh, environmental issues a lot. And and, um, it seems like the hardest thing often is to make progress on them uh, because – you know, again, I was raised in you know in in America in the early '90s. I don't know if in Australia you're familiar with a show called Captain Planet, um, uh, but uh, that. Hey, hey. Well, so Captain Planet was a superhero. He was an environmental superhero, and he fought environmental supervillains. And the supervillains were people named like Hoggis Greedly or whatever, who was sort of like a pig man <laughs> who had a big factory, and he would like cut down a whole forest just because he loved making smog. You know, he'd be like smog, yeah. be- like yeah. beautiful smog. And the you know, the idea was that any Anyone doing any kind of environmental destruction was evil, and all you have to do is stop them. Um, And what I've realized more, uh, you know, the older I get and the more I read about these issues, is that the real reasons for environmental destruction sort of always look on the ground level, they always look sensible, you know, like to... To the people in a lot of these countries, uh, you know, it would be like, "Well, why wouldn't we, you know, turn this land into farmland? Like, we have people who need to eat in our goddamn country, you know. Like, what, like, what are we supposed to do?" And so, so, uh, you know, you would do the same thing in our position. And in fact, we have in our country, you know, we've we've cut down forests <laughs> in order to it, yeah. to do these things, yeah. and now we want other people to not to do as we say, not as we do, um, and that well, therefore I, I, we have to create I, I, incentives.
1: I wouldn't entirely overlook the role of that sort of ruthless corporate greed. I mean, I think that does happen too. Mm -hmm. I just think actually that you can't import a mindset which is fashioned by the environmental politics of the industrial setting where we're talking about pollution and so forth. You can't import that into the biodiversity conservation setting because the players are very different you don't have this kind of often quite clear opposition between sort of private, income-seeking, large, powerful corporates and the sort of defenseless environment and broader public interest. It's just not that simple.
2: Got
0: it. Because it's just the the collection of of incentives and needs of the community and the wildlife are, are so much more closely enmeshed in a way.
1: Yeah, you've got this whole other set of players, the communities who live with wildlife and they may use it. They may use it sustainably. They may use it unsustainably. There may be the potential to use it sustainably. They may be very poor but relying on nature. Yeah, and you need to be exactly thinking about those long-term issues of incentives for conservation against a backdrop in which basically – we're moving towards a situation where all land is used and all land is used intensively except those little patches which can sustain the political will to maintain them as wild or semi-wild. Because the backdrop is actually you've got a big movement towards de-gazettement of protected areas. Bits are getting chopped out of protected areas for mining or for agriculture or Uh. for development or to put a big road across them. So we're talking about wildlife having to fight for its space even in protected areas much less outside protected areas and basically protected areas are not going to conserve our wildlife you know you need healthy populations outside of protect, protected areas as well right. so you need to think how do we meet meet the needs of the people living in those landscapes as well as the wildlife at the same time if i can so it's not go ahead yeah, so it's never going to be it's always a kind of second best solution. Okay? Like the the first the most the purest and most sparklingly beautiful solution is that there's wild nature untouched by humans roaming through. <laughs> okay, that's still possibly a reality in tiny bits of the globe. I suspect it's not a reality anywhere in Africa now, for example, really? and probably most of the rest of the world as well. Yeah, and I mean, there are, there are well, even Antarctica, <laughs> the pressures down there are increasing too from tourism and so forth. Oh, no. <laughs> Not to mention climate change. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we need to be really pragmatic. We need to have workable second-best solutions, which are still going to give wildlife some of what it needs and give people some of what they need. And, and this is where the perfect can definitely be the enemy of the good. Right so in in reaching for perfection, we just can pull the rug right under right out from under something which is actually more or less working
0: wow and yeah i i mean i love the i love how how pragmatic your approach is and and let me see if I can distill down you said some really incredible things about you know yeah we're we're going to be facing a future where uh, the where all land is accounted for, it's it's being used by someone, right? Or someone has a claim on it, and is it's developed in one way or another. And so, if we want parts to be, uh, you know, wild or protected, or to be a, a space for animals, we have to sort of make the the land's use for that purpose have value to the people who have a claim on it, to the people in that area. Like we we absolutely, need
1: absolutely hundred percent. Yeah, we need
0: to we need to make yep. conservation a valuable proposition to those people and trophy hunting is one way to do that
1: it's only one way but yeah it can really help yeah you know and those debates are already being had and and have been had for years so just again to go back to africa local people local leaders calling for you know the end to certain protected areas why do we have to live with this wildlife it doesn't feed us it doesn't grow our crops so the pressures on those areas are intense and they're only going to increase.
0: Right. Um it, it sort of reminds me of and this is going I'm going to broadly generalize a bit of very high level environmental politics that I barely understand but um which is what I do as a comedian by the way is I uh, is I grotesquely <laughs> generalize and so you can tell me if I've got any of this wrong but I read about a um sort of broad diplomatic back and forth between sort of the rainforest nations of of South America um uh where basically they you know were saying well okay all of you in the developed nations or the or the more developed nations want uh, want us to not cut down this rainforest. But we've got a lot of hungry, poor people here. This is a, you know, we're a country that wants to economically develop like you all did 100 years ago. Um, this rainforest isn't producing anything currently. So, you know, if we're looking out for our own best interests, we're going to cut it down. Maybe if you want us to not cut it down, you should pay us if you want it to not be cut down so much, <laughs> you know, that, that like you, well, if, if it has value to yeah. you, then then you need to uh, be paying that value to us because we're doing exactly what you would do in our circumstance, which uh,
2: and,
1: and, and, and have done. Yes. <laughs> in the past. Yeah. Well, and Ecuador make, made it very explicit. It said there's oil under this particular bit of very high value rainforest. This is how much money we want you to pledge if you don't want us to extract this oil and the world didn't deliver so i'm not sure what's happened there <laughs> but they the government made an announcement that the world hadn't come up with the cash and so they saw the way open to exploiting that oil
0: and that's rainforest that you know globally we all we all want to stay there in because of its role in the global ecosystem um and in, yeah. in carbon dioxide and all that but um uh, and it well, it's so strange because that's it, so easy to characterize as oh, that's just a ransom payment, and you should just behave ethically. But it's such a bizarre thing to ask someone else to behave ethically on your behalf when it's a principle that you wouldn't follow on your own, nor do you have the option to. Like, it's not very helpful to say, "Hey, you, you know, you behave better than me." Uh, at all? Yeah,
1: exactly. It is. It is straightforward. It does tend to look like hypocrisy from the points of views of those countries.
0: And so, yeah, so this conversation is one that, uh, you know, obviously that's a whole messy issue, right? I don't expect us to resolve. I don't even exactly know how I feel about that conversation, but, you know, I've heard it. That's the sort of detailed, uh, messy fight that needs to be waged about conservation generally that is so – it's so divorced from most Americans – Uh, view of, or, you know, most uh, people in America like countries, right? Their view of conservation where all you need to do is uh, pay a hundred bucks to the company that sends you the polar bear stickers in the mail and uh, Mm. we can do it. Um, And all that we need is to, all we have to do is everybody has to want to do it and then it'll happen. Right. Um, But the reality is much messier than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And when you consider the sort of, you know, the average one of us living in a developed country in a sort of having a post-industrial lifestyle, so many of our daily decisions are bound up with impacts in developing countries. So whether it's emissions from our car, fish we may be eating that are coming from overfished stocks in West Africa, timber, which, which may be coming from very poorly managed logging. You know, I don't know. Um, superannuation or pension funds which are invested, we don't know where. You know, we're all part of it. It's very hard not to be complicit in environmental degradation in developing countries.
0: Right, and that's why be, because it's so difficult, that's why I sort of try to look, it's difficult for people in those countries to you know find a reason to save those animals all by themselves without incentives. It's difficult for us to, you know uh, reduce our impact because we you know, I happen to live in a city where I must drive in order to get around to some extent, right? Uh, so it, that ethical finger wagging, it's sort of been my conclusion that that we need to overall get away from it. Stop judging other folks, stop judging maybe even ourselves quite so much and instead look for pragmatic solutions such as the ones that you offer in order to make some headway and to just have everybody, I don't know, own other people's problems as much as you own your own, I suppose.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's really hard for people because people look at these really distressing and horrendous kind of declines going on you know we've lost thirty percent of elephants in the last few years
2: right.
1: half of lion range in, in a certain number of years. These are really distressing situations and people want to be do to do something. And this kind of I think the reason this banning trophy hunting has has got so much momentum is that people see it as one thing they can do and a kind of achievable goal. A simple, symbolic mm. kind of Something happening that could arrest this, whereas the reality is it will do nothing at all to arrest those broader patterns of wildlife decline and poaching, and in some cases it will make them worse. But it's quite hard to say that to people because they really want to do something because they're very genuinely motivated to help.
0: Right, but it's so hard to it's it's a much harder proposition to uh, solve the systemic, economic problems in conservation in such and such a country in order to incentivize the local population to not uh yada 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 that's a much harder it's not uh, very
2: catchy is it
0: yeah <laughs> it's a lot harder to put in your uh fundraiser for your uh you know for your group or or uh etc yeah
1: yeah or your social media campaign
0: well i'm here talking to rosie cooney we will be back in just a moment so stick around please Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. And I'm Dr. Sydney McElroy. Every week, we release a medical history podcast called Sawbones. We go over the history of the dumbest, grossest, weirdest stuff humans have been doing to each other since the dawn of mankind. But it's a funny show. But it's also so disgusting and stomach-turning, you won't believe it. But it's also, like, (laughs) funny. It's funny. It is the wildest, grossest, nastiest stuff you can imagine. It's a real hoot. It's called Sawbones, and we release it every week on iTunes, wherever podcasts are sold, and right here on (laughs) MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover, and I'm here talking to Rosie Cooney, who appeared on the Animals episode of Adam Ruins Everything. So let me let me ask you this, because this is a this is sort of a question we, we get, is uh Uh, Going back to the idea of, okay, say I'm on board with, say I'm skeptical, but I'm on board with the idea, all right, this kind of conservation has to be economically valuable for the people in that country. We need to, you know, if we're going to set land aside for animals, it has to give value to the community as well uh, by serving that purpose. Uh, Why can't we just do that through non-hunting-related tourism, for example?
1: Yeah, well, you can. You definitely can in some places. And, um... If you've got a country which has good tourist infrastructure, it's got political stability, it hasn't got any kind of noxious diseases tourists want to avoid, you've got the hotels, you've got kind of good hygiene standards, food supply, you've got the right kind of level of capital investment and training for local people to build the lodges, then it really can work and it can work really really well and and the experience in Namibia, say, is that when conservancies have got to the stage where they can do tourism, the revenues from tourism are higher. Hmm. But not, not all of them can do it. And especially when they're starting out, trophy hunting fulfills a really critical role of being able to generate revenue from, with less infrastructure and with lower wildlife populations. Because trophy hunters will go places that tourists won't. Like The tourist market is, is first, it's very fickle. It's extremely changeable. So Kenya, for instance, had a massive hit to its tourism after Ebola in West Africa, Uh. even though that's, you know, the other side of the continent. People (laughs) were just like, Africa, too scary, and canceled their holidays to Kenya. Right. So there's nothing wrong whatsoever with tourism, and it has brought massive benefits to conservation, but it's just very restricted where you can do it. You need a whole lot of preconditions in place for where you can do it. And even looking in Africa, so South Africa and Kenya are the two countries which get the massive lion's share, if I can say that, of tourism in Africa. You know, there's not many people who are going to go to, say, Burkina Faso for their next holiday. (laughs) Yeah. So so these are, like, Burkina Faso uses trophy hunting, for instance, to raise revenue. And to say that that could be replaced by tourism is just completely unrealistic. You know maybe, in twenty years um it will be more likely in some places, maybe at a global scale, trophy hunting will be something that can be superseded by by other other approaches right but at the moment, yeah, it's just not realistic and not feasible in in many places that trophy hunting is currently working.
0: Are there any other um I'm just curious beyond trophy hunting and and sort of environmental tourism generally are there any other models that have been successful in terms of you know uh the this sort of idea of incentivizing uh locals in order to do these protections themselves or
1: yeah no, I mean there are quite a few other models, none of them are without the challenges, but so one model, for instance, is under the red plus scheme, so it's a mechanism set up under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it's called REDD+. It's uh, a scheme aimed at reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation in developing countries, but REDD+, as an acronym. And basically Mm. the idea that you mobilize payments from developed country governments, which go back to developed countries developing countries in order to incentivize them to maintain forests and wildlife habitat
2: hmm.
1: and so in some cases like in Kenya there's actually been schemes worked out where communities are benefiting through this process it's quite a laborious top heavy governmental process um, so it's not something that communities can necessarily easily access Or control themselves but it certainly is working in some areas. Um, There are other schemes like for instance there's a great scheme in Zambia called Kamako, Community Markets for Conservation, where they're essentially, if communities agree not to poach wildlife for food in the nearby area, they get better price for their agricultural products. And then those agricultural products are made into things like breakfast cereals, which are marketed with the kind of It's Wild logo and sort of telling the story of how poachers have become protectors in this local area. So it's really returning benefits to local people. And in return, they agreed that they will protect that wildlife. So there are quite a few ways to do this. Um, they, tend, they tend to have very high transaction costs, mm-hmm. you know, developing They really have to be worked out in a context-specific local way.
2: Sure.
1: But even sort of percentages of national park gate fees in a lot of countries, a certain amount of benefit from the entry fees that people pay to national parks go back to local communities to encourage them to support conservation and to tolerate the wildlife that might come out of the park and damage their crops, for example. So there are, there are lots of ways to do it. They're not all available in each area, but there are many ways to do this.
0: And do you find this, this sort of general approach, is it, I mean, because it, it sounds like, right, if you uh, if you want to conserve these animals and their habitats, uh, it, you have to use an approach like this. Um, they're all very messy and none of them are perfect, uh, but are they... Making headway? (laughs) Do you have a reason for for optimism as as far as this this sort of model of program goes or?
1: I tell you what, you really shouldn't ask me about optimism. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. There are some fantastic. There are some wonderful stories out there. (laughs) So we've been doing a series of workshops around the world about community engagement in addressing illegal wildlife trade. And we've done it in Southern Africa, West Africa, and the week after next in Southeast Asia. And at all of these, there's been some really fantastic examples of projects which have really involved and incentivized the local community through various ways, whether it's tourism or basket weaving or sustainable use of trees or sustainable hunting. And, you know, that are really getting results and are really inspiring. But if we step back and look at the planetary level, it's a a very alarming picture. So WWF came out with figures a few years ago, and they've recently been updated in an even more negative direction. That Hmm. since the year I was born, which is 1970, the world has lost half of its wildlife.
0: Overall, like all wildlife?
1: all wildlife. So we're not talking about losing half of the species. We're talking about sort of numbers of animals and we're roughly talking about terrestrial vertebrates here. Things with a backbone on land. Half of them have have gone. Like biomass wise? Uh, Yes.
0: Really? That's incredible.
1: Yeah. I know. This is the world we're living in. Over sort of four and a bit decades half of the world's wildlife has just gone. So it's Quite hard to be optimistic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so stunning. I I, I read um uh, last year, and 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 honestly, it's it's influenced so much of my thinking. I might have mentioned it on the podcast before the the book, The Sixth Extinction, by uh, Elizabeth Colbert, which which first put into my right. my mind that this. Uh, and I'm sure it's not not news to you, but it, but it was it was news to me, and and it sort of needed to be dramatized for me. The fact that we're that we're undergoing a mass extinction, and that and that mass yeah. mass amounts of wildlife not just species but i mean as as you just confirmed for me that the simple biomass meaning the the amount of biomass is like weight right like the amount of physical yeah, animal biomass
1: is about weight but yeah so so it would have been calculated in terms of numbers in terms of so numbers. numbers of animals lives, but yeah. that's
0: but that's what we're talking about as we as we're talking about like the we're not saying oh a couple species are going extinct or endangered species it's the total number yeah. of of animals and species on the planet is plummeting over the course of decades and on a you know
1: so i think we're at this stage where the (laughs) the massive decreases in populations have not yet translated so heavily into lost species i see but you know a lot a lot of those species are now kind of small remnant populations or they're captive populations or they're you know only in one protected area so they're kind of hanging on, but we probably will lose a lot of them unless things change in the next couple of decades.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder. But
1: okay, if you want a good news story, then... <laughs> I would love one. Yeah, in the developed world, like in the USA, Canada, most of Europe, wildlife is coming back. Really? Yeah. So, okay, I mean, so the US, for instance, you've had an amazing trajectory over the last hundred years or so from most large wild mammals being decimated right. from unregulated commercial hunting to having really healthy and abundant populations of most of those. In Europe, you've got lynx coming back, the bears are coming back, wolves are coming back, some of the smaller carnivores are coming back. And it's largely due, well, I think it's largely due, to to increased urbanization and Mm. decreased intensity of activity in rural, er- rural areas. And my only question about that is that a lot of the source of the food and products which now feed the developed world are coming from the developing world. <laughs> so the impacts are more or less just being pushed offshore.
0: Right. That's always the question. Are we, are we actually doing a better job or have we just pushed the, the bad shit further away? Um, yeah
1: and I think definitely the latter in most cases
0: but I, I wonder if you know we have this idea that um, and uh, this is something I've been trying to get at in our in our work that has touched on uh, environmental issues and and we have a, an, an episode on climate change coming out uh, later in the year uh, that uh, we sort of have this idea that there's still a uh, untrammeled nature out there that there's a mm, uh, that mm, there's a exactly. wild yeah. There's a wild world that we need to save and that we just need to sort of let it alone. But the reality is that it doesn't exist anymore. And it's it's quickly what's left is quickly disappearing through just normal human activity, not bad guys or evil people or, you know, crazy things happening. Just humans living their lives is having this massive impact. And we sort of so we don't have time maybe for, for pie in the sky or for, you know, moralistic uh, solutions. We need. We need to take whatever measures we can right at this present moment to save as many animals as possible, even if we don't like those solutions that much. Perhaps.
1: I would a hundred percent agree with that picture. Actually, yeah. No, I mean I see this in a lot of the writings against trophy hunting. You know, the animals should be wild and untouched, and I just think where. Yeah. You know, where, where is that going to happen? What Where are these areas that they can just roam <laughs> free and wild?
0: Well, you know, I, I've seen, uh, you know, I saw the Jungle Book, right? I saw The Lion King. Aren't they there? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <know>? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've watched Madagascar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that is actually part of it. I have young children, and it's quite extraordinary to see the – it's not just animals having voices and personalities. It's really kind of animals being people. You know, in all the kids' TV and films, they're in cities, they're sort of. It's really hard for people to grow up without relating to animals as they would relate to another person.
0: Right. Well, let Which me It's l- kind
1: of wonderful in terms of empathy, but in terms of practical conservation it can it can really get in the way.
0: Right. So let let me close with this with this question and and it's kind of a big one, but you know, there there are so many people who and we wrestle with this in the episode, right? Our character Veronica who's who I'm talking to is, you know, a a sort of classic animal lover and the type of person who like so many of us, and I feel this way, you know, very often myself is just so, you know, feels so attached. Attached is the wrong word. Feels so um, uh, in communion with those animals that, you know, she can't, you know, bear the thought of one of one dying uh, or or being killed. And that uh, empathy, on the one hand, seems so powerful that it that it drives people, you know, to think about. Something other than themselves, right, and think about the welfare of another species which mm. is a which is a beautiful thing, but on the yeah. other hand i'm I have the concern that it gets in the way at times do you have a do you have a feeling about that
1: yeah yeah, well it's hard I mean, I have the same thing myself i can't kill the ants in the cat's bowl, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I think people just grow up actually with very little contact with wild animals,
2: mm.
1: so they don't recognize that. This isn't like a puppy dog in their backyard, which they can, can cuddle and, and hug and kiss.
2: Right.
1: You know, yeah, I don't know. I actually wrestle with this all the time myself, so I don't have a good answer. <laughs> but I think people, people should keep the empathy. The empathy is good. We need more empathy with wild animals. But they also need to kind of, well, I guess first have empathy for the people also. In many cases, really poor people who are living with them, and just maybe broaden the view out and think, how do I set that empathy and this desire to help individual animals within an approach that incorporates all these other complicated factors and will actually give those animals a long-term future?
0: Right. Thank you. So that's a wonderful way to end, and and I think it's. I mean, it's such a difficult thing to do, but it's it sort of falls into the topic we always do on the show, which is, hey, if you really want to help, it's it's harder than you think. But here's here's what you need in order to do it. Um,
1: well, I think that's the problem, though, is that I haven't been able to give any practical guidance on what to do because I actually <laughs> think it's really hard. What do you do? I think people can kind of look at their own consumption and behavior. Actually, it's probably yeah. the most useful thing they can do is think about whether food comes from same
2: so. well,
0: and hopefully support the work of of groups like the i u c n and and others I hope
1: yeah absolutely yeah, <laughs> well, th- yeah that would be great <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, thank you so much thank you so much Rosie for taking the time and for the wonderful oh, thank work you, you. do. It's
1: really great you must be quite occupied with the election so
0: um... <laughs> <laughs> honestly i'm very happy to think about animals for five minutes instead of uh yeah, instead okay, of the election no, for a moment correct. although by the time people hear this it will have been over so hey you guys are in the future you know who's who's the president and we don't oh, my um, God. <laughs> yeah uh so uh please tweet at me and, and tell me what it's like in the future thank you thank you again so much rosie <laughs> okay
1: thanks adam
0: Well, thank you once again to Rosie Cooney for coming on the show. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's, look, these issues about conservation are so difficult and so depressing and so complicated but we owe it to ourselves as a species that cares about other species to have them and to do our goddamn best uh, to help as many animals as we can uh, before I don't know they're all wiped out it's look that's very bleak but that's the world if you like Adam ruins everything I think you're comfortable with uh with being in that world uh, and doing the best you can in a, in a making the best of a bad situation so um uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it let me know if you did you can tweet at me at, at Adam Conover to let me know if you like the episode or not. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast this week. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. That helps out the show a lot. Uh, again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, airs on Tuesdays on True TV. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV App. But until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Okay, bye. MaximumFun.org.
2: Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
0: Listener supported.